0: We're talking about stories of honor these days. And now last week I was actually in uh, Oregon, uh, serving at a men's retreat, and then um, speaking at a church, I think three times they have a big, bigger church, and talking about, uh, just talking about what honor means, and what it means to walk in honor, and I, you know, I did an amazing job there. <laughs> you should have seen it. <laughs> Sorry to keep a straight face. Um, no, it was a really significant time, and of course, it's always great to come back home. I should tell you that uh, my wife and I, we're going we're to go on a holidays for a little bit here, and uh, we're still, it won't look a lot different on Sundays. We're still going to try to be here as many Sundays as possible. I'm going to preach a few times, but we're going to take actually a couple months off and uh, spend some time just being able to focus on each other and our family And again, you'll probably see us on Sundays. It won't look too different uh, from this perspective. But for us, we just are really looking forward to some time just to relax and uh, build into each other and rest in Jesus and those kinds of things. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at, I think, is one of my favorite books in the Bible, and it's the book of Hosea. I don't know how many of you have read this book before, but I think it's a remarkable story, and it's this. It uh, I would venture to say, better than any other book in the Bible, reveals God's heart. Uh, and the wrestling, it, it just feels like the the veil has been pulled back, and you can see into the very heart of God, how He thinks about us and thinks about this world. And the primary way that he describes himself is as a husband who's wed to an unfaithful bride. That's how he describes himself, that he has this deep and passionate love for his people, and his people are constantly wandering off and following other gods. Let me read to you from chapter 2. It's not going to be up there, but if you have a phone, it's quick. Hosea chapter 2. And uh, this is what he says, quoting Israel, uh, his bride, the people of God. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water. She has not acknowledged that I, God, was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens. I will take back my wool and my linen, intended to cover her naked body. So that's a a punishment's coming. And then it says in verse 14, therefore I'm now going to allure her. I'm going to entice her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt, out of a place of slavery, to originally be wed to God. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I'll remove the names of the Baals, the false gods, from her lips. What you see in the book of Isaiah is God in torment. And you see, in one moment, he is incredibly angry with his people. And he says, Enough is enough. I can only handle your unfaithfulness for so long, and I'm going to come and bring persecution. Bring a curse on the land. I'm going to come against you. And then a few minutes later, he says, I can't do that to you. You're my people and I love you with all that's in me. No, I'm going to remove all the curses and I'm just going to bless you. And he says, no, but every time I bless you, you go and turn away from me yet again. And so now I have to bring a curse. And he says, but I can't do that. And you see inside of the book of Hosea, back and forth, back and forth, God angry and bringing judgment and then in the next minute, extreme compassion. And it goes on this way over and over and over again. This uh, cycle of being merciful to his people and then enacting justice against them. Now, what is the, the root that's bringing this turmoil uh, into God's heart? And it's one word, and it's betrayal. Now, have you ever been betrayed before? There's one author that says that you can summarize all sin as an act of betrayal against God. It's an interesting way to think. Have you ever been betrayed before? Somebody that you've given your whole self to, you've given your heart to, you've been open and vulnerable... And they took advantage of you in that vulnerability and they betrayed you. I remember the first time I did counseling with somebody who ended up in this place. I, I remember performing their wedding, if I remember correctly. It was up in uh, Queen Elizabeth Park, beautiful wedding. And then it wasn't long before there were cracks in the foundation and they were not doing well together. And so Debbie and I met with them numerous times. And uh, eventually it came out. We wondered, why was the wife just not engaging? And it turned out she was having an affair this whole time. Uh, and I remember working that through with the husband. She eventually left. We never saw her again. And uh, I'm still friends with this guy on Facebook. But he hasn't stepped inside of a church again. He, he couldn't handle the betrayal it Something happened inside of his heart, that uh, he 's never been married again, he 's never been in church again. And I can tell you numerous stories that when betrayal happens, it wrecks you. And what we find inside of the living God is he's let you hurt him to that level. So uh, you look at this people group that we're reaching out to. And uh, they, they would define themselves as Muslims. I've read the Quran. I've read Muslim writing. Never do I hear of Allah being hurt. I never hear of that. One of the remarkable things about the Christian God is he has actually opened himself up to you and he lets himself be hurt by your behavior. That is a remarkable thought. Absolutely remarkable. What kind of God would do that? Would be so invested in you and I that he would feel betrayed when we're unfaithful to him. It's a remarkable uh, picture of who the Christian God is. So Listen to one more of these cycles of of God going through uh, being merciful and then saying, no, I've got to be just. And then just listen to one more. A spirit, this is speaking about the the people of God, uh, could be the church. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites stumble in their sin. Now listen to this. I will be like a lion. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. That's the Christian God speaking. I'm, I'm so betrayed... I'm so outraged, I'm going to tear my people to pieces in the hope that if they could become desperate again, perhaps they would return to me. This is hard stuff, hey? This is hard to work through. That This God who I've just told you is madly in love with you, As his people, and yet that love compels him to be a lion that would devour us. This is how he hopes we would respond to that. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. So, God's motive is, uh, much like a parent who disciplines his children, I'm not, I'm not doing this because I'm mean-spirited. My motive is that if you would experience the pain of being separated from me, you might come to your senses and return to me, and we can have a relationship again. That's what he's hoping for. But listen to how it's worded. You can see it on the screen. Uh, he has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. Here's the problem that I have with that passage. Would that motivate you to trust and return to God? There's a God who's going to injure you And he's hoping that what you would say to him is, I know that you can injure me, uh, and you have, but right now I'm hoping that you would heal me because I've come back to you. That's a bit of a stretch. I think the problem is we aren't sorry We're just insulted. How dare you injure me? Who are you to injure me? You're telling me that I'm supposed to trust in a God that if I don't worship you the way you expect me to, you're going to injure me and then you're going to want me to trust in you And be devoted to you? I don't think so. I think I'm just insulted. I just don't think you're very loving at all. And if you go around hurting people and acting like a lion, you deserve to have people not trust you. I'm not going to trust you. If this is how you treat the people that you say that you love, I'd hate to be your enemy. Are you following the logic? Because I think we, as a society, struggle with this all the time. Um, I was just talking to a friend of mine. He was at Regent College this week. And the title, he was taking a one-week course. And the title of the course was something like, All the Awkward Parts of the Old Testament. It it sounded more theological than that. But that was the main title of it. All the Awkward Parts of the Old Testament. And, uh, and... Uh, uh, one of the parts was about how God would treat homosexuality. Uh, another awkward part was about the creation of the world and how that syncs up with uh, evolution, evolution versus the Bible kind of idea. And the uh, one of the main ones was uh, a warring God. And that somehow um, we're supposed to trust this God who many would say committed genocide against people. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you life. And I'm I'm also going to kill you. How do we work that out in our relationship with him? How How do you work that out? You, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably felt obligated to at least glance through the Old Testament. And, uh, and as you read these stories, uh, what, do you, what do you do with that? I'm going through uh, 1 Samuel right now. And, and, and God says to David, wipe them all out. Women and children, not just those who carry a sword, wipe them all out. So, how does God respond to this? What does he do to help you and I trust him? Trust uh, not just in his mercy, but also trust him when he's just. And when he punishes, what does he do? He does something incredibly ingenious. He sends a prophet. Now, listen to the instructions... That God gives to this prophet to help you and I trust God. Okay, you, you following this? So, this is what he says to the prophet. He's gonna help us trust God. He says to Hosea, who's this prophet, Hosea, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For, like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the lord so hosea married gomer gomer is a super unfortunate name for a woman Can you imagine introducing to your parents this is gomer i just you can't even shorten it and make it sound good it's just it's just wrong all the way through anyways He's a good prophet, though, and he marries not just a prostitute, but a prostitute named Gomer. So that's, that's worse. Okay. Now, what's going on here? While God, just follow me. This is, this is the key moment. While God exercises mercy and justice, Hosea is told only to extend mercy. So God, through the whole book of Isaiah, he's mer- administering mercy and justice over and over and over again in this trying to heal the betrayal of his unfaithful wife. And God says, how am I going to show them that they can trust in my justice? I know. I'm going to send a prophet to reveal my mercy. Now, this commissioning of Hosea is consistent with how God has commissioned the church. As the church, you and I are responsible not to administer the justice of God, but really to limit ourselves to administering the mercy of God. That's our job description. It's what you and I have been called to do. If you flash forward to the end of the world as we know it, Jesus returns. Uh, Even as the army of God, if you read through the book of Revelation, you and I never pick up a sword. That even when finally we could get our due... And, you know, God's going to come in justice. Even at that moment, we never fight. Now, he will destroy his enemies. But that is never our job description. Our job description consistently from Hosea, and of course before, through the period of the church to the end of the age, our job description is consistently to be champions of mercy. Listen to uh, Romans chapter 12 as an example of this. Uh, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone for evil. How are you doing with that? Don't ever repay anyone with evil. Including like your spouse and children. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Not just in the eyes of God, but, but do what other people would see as being noble. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not, here's the point now, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, he's going to do the wrathful revenging thing. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. It's a symbol of repentance. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We've been talking for the past number of weeks about what an honorable life looks like. This is a remarkable description of what it means to be an honorable man or woman, and it's this to be merciful. If you're an honorable person, if you rightly represent the name of your God, your life will be characterized by mercy. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think that being honorable is about being perfect. Like, I'm going to be perfectly honorable, then I'm going to do everything right. I'm just, I'm always going to pay my taxes, and I'm never going to malign any, I'm going to be perfect. Now, Yeah, but what we see in Hosea is a brand new target for honor. And the target is not personal perfection. The target is a lifestyle of mercy toward the unfaithful. That would be the primary description of what a man or woman of honor would look like. They will go around looking for unfaithful people called Gomer... And they would go around looking for them and then they would be thoroughly devoted to them even though they would be unfaithful. Probably guaranteed. What a shocking job description for men and women of honor. Here's the point. People can't trust God's justice until they taste of his mercy. People can't trust that God is just when he wields the sword. They can't trust that that is a just act until they personally taste of his mercy. And the way that the world tastes of God's mercy is through the church. Being kind and generous and absorbing the cost of other people's sins. It's what we do. It's what the church does. Perhaps non Christians mistrust God's justice. I'm going to unpack this sentence, but I've got to say it first. Perhaps non Christians mistrust God's justice because we don't trust God's justice. And the way that it looks to trust God's justice is to be merciful. Now, let me just explain this. This is really, really important. If I'm going to be mistreated and misunderstood and I'm going to invest in people who aren't going to say thank you and I'm going to live a sacrificial life, there's only one way that I'll be able to do that. That I trust that at the end of the day I serve a just God who will bring his right reward. That's the only way that I can be self-sacrificing now because I trust that there is a God who is just. And he's looking over me and he's remembering the injustices against me. And one day, as it says in Romans 12, he will bring his wrath and he will bring his judgment. So I can trust him to be just so that I can be merciful. You following the logic now? If I don't trust that God is just, I won't be merciful. Here's the challenge. If I don't believe that he's just and therefore act mercifully, then the world will never ever see the mercy of God. I listen as I've... uh, I had my friend recount the arguments of a warring God of the Old Testament. I've heard them all before. And uh, I I read books on these things because I really, really care about it because I want to defend God's name. And uh, what I can do is I can present to you arguments to show how God really is nice. Like even though he kills people, every day, by the way, I don't know if, like every day he kills people. And he seemed to do that also in the Old Testament. So uh, I can give you arguments to show how that's okay. There's a better way to show that. It's by you and I living a life of self-sacrifice. That's the best argument he has going. It's what he said to Hosea. What shocks me about the book of Hosea is this window into god's heart but you never hear about hosea except whenever god commands him twice to go and to be faithful to an unfaithful prostitute you you, all the the only defense the only thing hosea ever does is be faithful to the unfaithful and this is exactly the mandate that jesus has given to the church the way that the world will realize that God is trustworthy is if you and I practice mercy. And if we don't practice mercy, it doesn't matter how good our arguments are, how logical we are, and how well we intellectually defend the name of God, if we don't demonstrate mercy through self-sacrifice, the world will continue to mistrust the name of God. And that puts you and I in a really awkward moment. Because it's not enough to speak of God's mercy. It must be demonstrated. Debbie and I um, have... uh, Many of you know that we had lots and lots of people live with us over the years. And uh, when you live with people, they start doing like wrong things. And uh, without exception, I would say... People who have come to Christ in our home came to Christ not through our words, but through suffering for their sin. Uh, mostly, because I think money is the universal language, mostly it was about giving them free rent. Um, I remember this one guy. They're not the only, he wasn't the only one, but we had a number of people who would live with us. They lived downstairs. And what they could do is they could sneak in their boyfriends or girlfriends, have sex with them in our house, and then they would leave through the window in the middle of the night and then we wouldn't see right except we would now and then you know catch them (laughs) jumping over the fence and (laughs) it's like oh there goes one and uh and then i remember i remember this one in particular uh just a cute you know teenager and uh he was having sex with his girlfriend downstairs and so we said hey you having sex with your girlfriend in our house so he felt super ashamed really really ashamed and so what he would do every night after that is he would stand outside of our house for hours and wait for our lights to be turned off and then come inside and sneak downstairs that was his method of avoiding guilt and shame and so we figured this out after a few days And so we go out and talk to him out on the street and say, you know what? Uh, I can't tell you all the things that God has forgiven me for. And the forgiveness that I've experienced over and over and over again in my life, I would like to extend to you. And I want you to know that I don't look at you through eyes of shame. I look at you through eyes of honor and that you would know that you're loved by your heavenly father and he's come near to you while you've been unfaithful. And he came to Christ. Now, you can't teach that. You can only demonstrate that. And eventually, the church is going to need to get around to this. If we are expecting to see the world come to Christ and trust that God is just, we will need to demonstrate to the world a self-sacrificing mercy. This, I think, is in our job description as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. I'm sobered by it. In fact, let me just rub salt in the boon just a little bit deeper, and it'll be over in only about a minute. In fact, our practice of mercy reveals our level of trust in God's justice. I think, I can speak for myself, maybe for you, but I think when I'm not self-sacrificing, it's because I don't really trust that God is just. I don't really trust that he's going to look after me. I don't really trust that my name will be honored. I just feel like a fool. I have lots of examples of that. but All my examples that are in my head right now are incriminating. So I can't, um, I can't speak them right now. What if what Hosea reveals to you and I is that what is required to live a life of self-sacrifice is a new level of trust in the justice of your God. And what if it's not about being more sacrificial and trying harder and, and uh, counting the cost? What if that's not the answer? What if the answer is, children, children, Do you trust that me as your Father will be just and will look after you and will care for you? Do you trust that of me? And if you trust that of me, then you can live with more abandon. But if you do not trust that of me, you will never ever live a life of self-sacrifice and this world will never see my heart. God speaking. So do you trust, do you struggle rather, That God is just. How do you get out of that? How do you learn about the justice of God? This is what we end with. Be faithful to the unfaithful. The way that you will learn the goodness of God is through self-sacrifice. I don't know of another way. I don't know. I I can't recount how many times Debbie and I have had the conversation How much money should we give this person this time? I don't know how many times we've had that conversation. Just over and over and over again. But listen, every time we give money to somebody, every time we forgive somebody's sins, every time we overlook an offense, something happens in my heart that is revolutionary. I begin to discover how good and loving my father really is. They think that we're loving them, and I hope that we are. But I know what's going on in my heart. My self-righteousness, my pride, my suspicion is being destroyed through self-sacrifice. There's no way around it. If you mistrust God, if you're afraid, I double-dare you to live a life of self-sacrifice. Find a cost Don't be stupid about it, but find a cost. Love somebody who won't be able to love you well back. Invest in them, and it will change your life. Carol and I have been talking these days. Carol is a teacher and a trainer. I don't know of anybody better. I'm a teacher kind of person, too. You know what we've been talking a lot about these days? That we are nervous about having overtrained you. That's what we've been talking about. We've been nervous about this. And we've been nervous that we might be sending you the message that your road to freedom is through training instead of self sacrifice. That's what we've been nervous about. Uh, when Kingdom Life Ministry School started, it was two years long. Then we got it down to one year. This last year, it was 19 weeks. Next year, we're shooting for 12. And the reason is, not because we're just chucking out stuff or don't think it all matters. Actually, the whole thing matters a lot. I wish it was 20 years long. But what we're realizing is that the way that people's lives really change is by doing it. By laying down your life for someone else. And we don't want to create the illusion that instruction is the road to growth. It can help you along the way, or I wouldn't be talking now. But it's not the main point. God invites you to trust your kids. One of the uh, the things that Debbie and I talk a lot about is... uh, is the joy of being taken advantage of by our children. So, uh, so we will uh, we'll do something and then say, you know they're not going to come through. Yeah, I know that. But it's what we do. We just do it and know that it won't come back. Maybe, I mean, in a while it will. Because I really, I think we have amazing kids, so all of them. It'll come back around, but not in the moment or sometimes anytime soon. And you just get taken advantage of by your children. Parents, are you taken advantage of by your kids? If not, you're not good parents. You should be a sucker. Get taken advantage of all the time. Give them way more. One of the things that we we talk about with our kids, uh, no, maybe not always to them, but we talk about, in the world, they'll figure out justice. You're lazy, you're fired. Super simple. Super simple. The, the world is going to work that out for them. Super simple. But you know what the world will never work out for them? That you're going to be loved and forgiven over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. We're going to do what the world will never give you, and that's kindness. Because home is the place where you're unconditionally loved and accepted. We'll see how it works. We'll get back to you in 10, 20 years. <laughs> do you do that with your coworkers? Do you let yourself be taken advantage of by your coworkers? Do you do something and then brag about how amazing they were when they barely did anything? When you're at school and you're working on a group project, and everybody always hates group projects, um, do you compliment the people who aren't pulling their weight? And do you cover for them? or expose them when it's time for grades. One last story and then we'll end. Uh, there was one fellow who came to live with us and uh, he came off the street. We had back then uh, in our church, we had a halfway house for people who were coming off the street but couldn't really live on their own yet. And so this, the house ended up having to shut down. He was only there for a short while. He had nowhere else to go, and so Debbie and I took him in, and he, was, he lived with us for over a year. Great guy. Man, I enjoyed him, and not. He—he uh, he would hate. We would play Monopoly with him all the time, and he was sure that Debbie and I were ganging up on him all the time. And he would cuss us out over Monopoly. You, like, you have no idea. You effing, like, he would just rip in. A, you guys are always going to go have a smoke, and then come back, and he goes, I'm okay. I'm okay, and then he'd shake the dice again. <laughs> It's, uh, it's pretty funny. <clears throat> we, uh, we gave him our car. We uh, helped him buy a whole bunch of equipment. He was a drywaller so that he could go back drywalling. And uh, his first paycheck, I think he shot up 14 times. And uh, we come home, and our house looks like it's been ransacked. There's a dent in the fridge, which seems super hard to do. And uh, things are are crushed and smashed and broken. And so we, we call upstairs, wondering whether he's home. And it, it was a dumb idea, because he comes out of his room higher than a kite, just wired. If you've ever seen a person on drugs, you've ever been one, you, you know that look in their eyes. And it's, sorry, you know, please go back to bed, but it was too late. And so I... Uh, As the story goes, I did what any manly man would do. I I phoned the police and ran outside with my kids and uh, waited for the police to come and save us. And they took him off. I remember him saying, as they're taking him off to the uh, female police officer, Have you ever seen a dead body, love, as he's being taken away? Just zero repentance. Zero. Uh, They take him away. I'm just happy he's gone. Uh, next morning, I go downstairs. Actually, it was in the afternoon. I walk downstairs, and he's in our living room. What are you doing here? The doors are locked, and he's in our living room. And he goes, I know how to break into your house. <laughs> so he, uh, so he, he, he breaks into our house, and he's standing there, and he says, would you please give me another chance? Nuts. I hate it when you ask. Don't ask. <laughs> Will you give me another chance? So I says, man, I don't know. Uh, just give me a minute. And so a couple hours later, Debbie comes home from work. And there he is in our house. And God speaks to Debbie and says, my son's come home again. And the first thing, of course, in Debbie's mind is, uh, well, he's your son, not mine. So <laughs> that's the first thing that she thought. I would have thought the same thing. And, uh, and he says, welcome him back. Hosea, welcome him back. The unfaithful wife, son, welcome him back. So we welcome him back. He gets a few more paychecks. Uh, gets high after every paycheck. And now he's becoming abusive to the people in our home. He can't live with us anymore. So we change the locks. Thank you, Opa. We uh, change the locks. And he can't come. So then he phones us every night from a hotel he's staying in, how he's going to take his life, and it's all our fault. And then we just don't hear from him for four years, six years. We don't hear from him. And then he phones us six years later. He says, this "Is it okay if I phone you. He's super ashamed now. He's not talking about dead bodies anymore. And he says, I want you to know that when I left your house, I was really, really angry at you. I hated you he says, so I I went back in the streets. I lost everything again. But he says, what I couldn't shake was the unconditional love that I felt in your home. He says, I want you to know that I've come back to Christ. I'm following him. I'm actually house-sitting for a pastor. And uh, he says, I want you to know that your suffering was not in vain. And I'm following Jesus because of you. Now, I'm pretty sure he's following Jesus because of Jesus. But that's what he said. can I please encourage you to have some stories? Have some stories. Work this out. I can't tell you how many people have told Debbie and I that we're idiots for having people in our house. Work that out. Because this world needs to taste of faithfulness in the face of unfaithfulness. And if we don't live this way, There will be no arguments to win the world and we will be held in judgment as the unfaithful wife. Could you please come forward? Let's stand together. Father, I pray for my friends here. I thank you for revealing to us that we're the unfaithful wife. I'm the unfaithful wife. I'm the one who has taken your mercy and ran with it and ignored you and spent my inheritance on personal pleasure. I'm that guy. Father, whenever you've brought the poor into our home into our lives, we realize that we are the poor and we're no better. And I ask today that you would free my friends from the fear of suffering. I ask that you would liberate us from being afraid of losing money, of losing reputation, of losing time, losing dignity. Father, I thank you that you've given us a better road to honor than self-esteem. You've given us a better road. And I ask that we would join in Christ in picking up our cross daily and following you. Because I thank you that in that place is freedom and life and joy. And more than that, the world will see you for who you really are. God, I am sick and tired of the world dishonoring your name. As a church, would you please let us be an answer to their slander? Would you let us demonstrate as a people who you really are? That as we demonstrate mercy they would come to trust your justice. Thank you that justice and mercy met at the cross. And it's that kind of life that we choose to embrace now. Amen. Let's demonstrate this by coming forward for communion, joining in what Christ has done for us.